Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. Uh, this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I am just happy. Oh, come on, I'm even excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you will discover, by spending an hour with us each Friday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern or 7 Pacific, uh, we will talk about and take one of the issues of our day, many of which are not discussed and uh, by our so-called leaders, and provide pretty much an in-depth analysis showing how we can apply libertarian values and approaches such that people everywhere will all rise together, frequently at the expense of many powerful and established special interests. Today, we will discuss what I call the biggest failed policy in the history of our great country, second only to slavery, and that is the policy of drug prohibition. And go back in my background a bit. Uh, I was a Navy JAG attorney, criminal defense attorney in the Navy, uh, first in Guam and then at Lemoore Naval Air Station. Uh, thereafter, uh, I was a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles and then appointed as a judge in uh, the end of 1983. And I just look back at my experience. When I was in Guam, there were all of a sudden headlines. This was about 1972, and the headlines showed that the first homicide had occurred in Guam since the end of the Second World War. And people were just really concerned about how this can happen in our great island. Well, as time went along, we found out that it was a matter of drugs coming, being brought into Guam, and it was a killing, a homicide, because of the drug money. And by the time I left, which was about middle of 1974, regretfully, it was a lot more common to have homicides, almost always drug money related. Then I went to the federal government and was a federal prosecutor, as I said, in Los Angeles and held the record for the largest drug prosecution in the Central District of California back in, say, 1978. Uh, 75 kilos of heroin uh, was and is a whole lot of heroin, something like 165 pounds. Do you know what the record prosecution is today in the Central District of California? It's 17 tons of cocaine in one place. You can tell with the progress we're making. And I started just looking around and seeing what's going on with regard to this, but didn't say much. I was fairly much a drug warrior at the time, and like most other people, just didn't give it much thought because I was raised the same way you were, and that is to equate, in effect, heroin with bad, with evil, with prison. And that pretty much ended the inquiry. But then, as I say, I became a judge at the end of 1989 and uh, started looking around in my own courtroom. And you would see pretty much the same people coming shuffling in and out. Uh, we are required in California uh, under Health and Safety Code 11550, anyone pleading guilty or found guilty of, of being under the influence of a narcotic uh, is required to spend a minimum 90 days in jail. So you'd see, oh, Charlie, I see you're back again, sort of thing. For no good particular purpose, you would see mentally ill people routinely in my own courtroom uh, who were self-medicating. It was amazing. Frequently, the women would be self-medicating with methamphetamines and the men with cocaine, but one way or the other, didn't do anybody any good uh, and certainly creating a great deal of harm to these mentally fragile people for no good purpose. And <laughs> then you'd look at the a big-time drug dealer. You know, if you would arrest and convict a big-time drug dealer, does that mean that, okay, heroin or cocaine or whatever is no longer available in these cities? No. No, you'd get, take about a day and a half or two days, and pretty soon someone else would have replaced him, and the heroin or whatever would still be available. But you start looking at it. You arrest a serial rapist, a burglar, some murderers. Uh, murder goes down in the, in the community. Rape goes down. 
burglaries go down, but it's not true with, the pro with the regard to processing drugs. So in 1992, I'd been a judge for about nine years, and I'd simply looked in the mirror a few times and thought, why doesn't somebody say what's going on? Why, doesn't, why don't people bring up this topic and talk about it instead of these, oh, mandatory minimum sentences, that will do it which of course it is not. So I did something extremely unusual for a sitting trial court judge back in 1992, and I held a press conference. And judges don't do that. And I was concerned because uh, I didn't know if that would be an ethical violation. I didn't know if uh, somebody would try to recall me as a judge or certainly run against me thereafter. But I simply decided that there's some things that are more important than job security. So I held a press conference in 1992 and stated that, look, we, what we're doing with regard to drug prohibition is not working. And we have to put our heads together and come up with something better because, my goodness, we couldn't do it any worse if we tried. So it worked pretty well and people started paying attention. And I said one thing, which I still continue to say, what is the biggest oxymoron in our world today? An oxymoron, of course, is a, a term that is inconsistent. Uh, the first is, you know, uh, jumbo shrimp, which is a contradiction in terms. But the biggest oxymoron in our world today is the term controlled substances. For heaven's sake, as soon as we prohibit a substance, we give up all of this control to the bad guys, you know, to the Mexican drug cartels, to the juvenile street gangs, to other thugs. We couldn't do it worse if we tried. And I knew before I held that press conference, in fact, I went across the street to the Board of Supervisors and put, they have little cubby holes for the media, you know, ABC News, whatever. And I put an invitation to come to the press conference in those. And then I went across the street to a mailbox. And I, at that point, I had these letters, maybe 20 letters to various news media in my hand. And I thought, you know, if I want to, I can go back to the Board of Supervisors and pull those invitations out of the cubby holes, but if I put these envelopes into the mail, it's crossing the Rubicon. This is something that will never, never be able to withdraw and it will change my life. I decided to do it anyway, and it has changed my life. I've gotten away with it. It changed my life for the better. Some of the truly best people I've ever met in my life, I've met because of our involvement in trying to reform our drug policy, to repeal drug prohibition. Uh, one of them was a guy named Norm Stamper, the former chief of police of Seattle. Uh, Steve Downing, the former assistant chief of police of Los Angeles. A guy named Kurt Schmoke, who was at that time the mayor of Baltimore. Uh, and I soon became requested to join what's called a speakers, speaker's bureau. It was then at that time called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And I would go on speaking tours. They basically would just have me get a pulpit to be able to discuss these issues with others. And it was amazingly effective, and it's still effective. Well, LEAP still continues, but now uh, it's called Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And it, because everything is so dovetailed together, it's not just against prohibition. Uh, it helps issues regarding the mentally ill, for example, uh, bail reform, uh, over-incarceration, and by the way, you have to know this, the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And as the former U.S. Uh, Senate uh, member Jim Webb said from Virginia, uh, he was quoted as saying, look, quoting that statistic, we're even either the most evil, criminally oriented people in the world or we're doing something wrong. Which do you think it is? So it has become law enforcement against excuse me, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And right now it is headed by our executive director, Major Neil Franklin. And he's going to be my guest today. I'm so proud of this man. He is undaunted. Uh, he has a long time background. And we're going to ask him what his what his position has been as a police officer, uh, he will, I'm sure, agree with me that people in the police department, just like judges, are required to do the right thing for the right reason every time. And speaking out against prohibition uh, certainly doesn't help anything. He has nothing to gain except to pursue justice, to pursue a better way. Because right now, we are harming so many people uh, in so many ways. Think Mexico, for example. It's the epitome. 
all of this violence going on in Mexico, all of the corruption, all of the beheadings has nothing to do with drugs whatsoever. Nothing. It's all drug money that causes those things. So we, we simply must come to grips with it. And by the way, it's our drug money that's causing it. And even these people coming up from Central America, you know, from Guatemala, from Honduras, from El Salvador, they're fleeing the violence. And the, much of the violence, I'd say a preponderance of the violence, is caused by drug gangs, caused by drug money. And it's our drug money that does it. So I think maybe that gives us a moral obligation to address those people coming up and fleeing the violence that we have been causing. So it's been tremendously satisfying for me. Here, I have approached this from a criminal justice standpoint uh, as to a change of our nation's drug policy. But, you know, so many people from so many other walks of life have come to the same conclusion, which is, of course, reinforcing. And that could be a member of the Chamber of Commerce, the medical community, or the religious community, certainly law enforcement. And that certainly includes my guest, Major Neil Franklin. Neil, welcome. So glad to have you with us. Thank you for spending this time with us. And, and uh, we're going to look forward to the next uh, 45 minutes, half an hour, 30, 60 minutes uh, for a conversation. Neil, welcome. Thank you, Jim. It's, it's a pleasure and honor to be on your show and to listen to you uh, give a brief overview of just how problematic the prohibition of drugs has become. Um, and, and you covered so many pieces of it, but as you delve into each one of these pieces that you mentioned and more, I think your guests will see that uh, <laughs> it is far-reaching into various areas of our society in a problematic way, not solving the problems that we have, especially when it comes to public safety. Well, Neil, tell us your journey. Tell us uh, what your educational background is. Tell us a little bit about your, your police uh, career uh, and uh, give us a few examples of, uh, of things that you have encountered that led you in the direction of where you and I now are, which is to repeal drug prohibition. Just let us know a little bit about Neil Franklin. Sure, Jim. And let me begin with saying that there is no more of an example of a career law enforcement professional uh, drug warrior or former drug warrior than me. And I say that because I started in policing at the age of 18 as a cadet with the Maryland State Police. And you can't begin much younger than that, maybe through an Explorer program, but you know, officially putting on the uniform and, and beginning to learn the ropes and working for a police department. I started immediately out of high school. I was raised in Baltimore. Um, Baltimore, as you, you mentioned, Baltimore, when you talk about Mayor Kurt Schmoke, who I've become very good friends with over the years, uh, mainly due to this work. But when I began my policing career with the Maryland State Police, I actually followed my brother into to law enforcement. So, I had a good glimpse of what it was like prior to uh, signing on the dotted line. And uh, soon after graduating from the Maryland State Police Academy around 1979, um, just a year on the road, I ended up going into narcotics and uh, working undercover, buying drugs, infiltrating groups and organizations, and, you know, People, when you when you talk about working undercover, I know for people who've been around a while, you think of shows like Miami Vice, you know, where you're infiltrating these big groups and you're and you're going after the the major drug trafficker and you know big time drug suppliers and cartel members and all of that. Yeah, and that happens occasionally, but for the most part, what you do as an undercover narc is you go after the small fish. You go after the users. You go after the people who are addicted to drugs. You go after the people who are just using drugs to change their state of mind and just to, in their minds, just to have a, to feel better about themselves. Uh, you mentioned mental health. You know, we go after those people who are self-medicating. By far and large, most of the people that I arrested, as we're trying to find and, and look for the bigger fish, who's bringing in most of the drugs, uh, you know, most of these people, most of these arrests were for marijuana possession. And then you put the fear of God in them. You know, you tell them all these stories of what it's going to be like when they're spending 
days and nights in jail and what could happen to them, and you just put fear into them. And at the end of the day, you just ruin their lives. I didn't realize this at the time because I had been fed the same old rhetoric that we were feeding all of these new police officers coming in to law enforcement that these drugs are bad. You know, they're, as you mentioned, they're evil and they're responsible for evil things that happen in the world. Not realizing that there are so many things in this world that can harm you if you create a negative environment for them to exist. And that's exactly what prohibition policies do. It creates an environment that is very problematic for drugs to exist. Boy, Neil, and, and you're right about that. In fact, I keep telling people that chainsaws, of course, are harmful as well. We should abolish them. You know, it's, it's a question of liberty. It's a question of responsibility. And let's get the laws to actually promote something that is going to be beneficial for society instead of what is so negative. So we've kind of whetted the appetite for our audience. We're going to come back in the next segment and pursue, in effect, the life and, and views of Major Neil Franklin uh, from the Baltimore Police Department and now the Executive Director of LEAP when we come back just after this message. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray on All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And I am honored to have my friend and leader, Neil Franklin, who's the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And we were just uh, in the process, Neil, of, of giving your background and how you have decided and, and acted so strongly, and thank you for that, by the way, uh, to help us come to our senses and repeal drug prohibition. We're making real progress, I think, nationwide with regard to understanding that marijuana prohibition has just simply not worked. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that for the last 10 to maybe 15 years, what has been the largest cash crop in the state of California? And the answer is marijuana, cannabis. Marijuana. Number two is grapes, for heaven's sake. So when you're driving along in California, you see those miles and miles of, of vineyards. Uh, marijuana is a larger cash crop even than that. So that just boggles my mind. Wouldn't it be better to regulate and control marijuana, tax it, and use that money to pay our firefighters, pay our teachers, and fix our roads? I mean, how hard can this be, taking away a whole lot of money from Mexican drug cartels, juvenile street gangs, and other thugs? So, Neil, just bring us along then. You're, you're on a roll here. Uh, how have you evolved into uh, a uh, drug, drug prohibition repealer instead of a drug warrior? 
Yeah, let me let me move through this and, and to that to that point where I did make that change, where I had that very life changing moment in, in my life, and uh, unfortunately, it's not a bright story. But when I when I finished working undercover, I eventually got assigned to a couple of special units, and one was working in our correctional facilities here, the Division of Corrections here in uh, the state of Maryland, where I quickly learned that. Uh, we can't keep drugs out of our most secure facilities. So how are we going to keep them out of our neighborhoods and away from our children, you know, through these policies of prohibition? We have more drugs in our prison institutions than in some of our neighborhoods. But then I eventually became a, a regional commander for the Bureau of Drug and Criminal Enforcement. Now I'm commanding drug task forces in the state of Maryland. I had seven at one time, and then they moved me to the Northeast region where I had nine drug task forces under my command. And these are multi-jurisdictional task forces of your, your sheriff's departments, your local PDs, your, your county prosecutors, state police, DEA officials, and more. And uh, so the war continued on. But for me, as I, as I ended my career with the Maryland State Police, formally retired in 1999, I was the head of training then. I was recruited by Baltimore City, the Baltimore City Police Department, to head up their training division. And within months after taking that job, uh, a good friend of mine, Ed Totley, who uh, was working undercover for the Maryland State Police, where I just left, uh, one of the best undercover agents that the state of Maryland had ever seen, uh, he just had that personality of befriending people, and and uh, he was just a great guy. And uh, he was working a, a special case on a task force with the FBI in Washington, D.C. It was on, uh, dealing with cocaine, and he was buying cocaine from this mid-level drug dealer who he had bought cocaine from before, and one particular night, they decided that, well, let's order up more. Let's order up more weight, a couple kilos and um, this guy decided that, hmm, there's now more money involved in the game. I think this is going to be the time when I rip Ed Totally off. I'm going to take his money, and I'm going to keep my drugs, and I can just, you know, double my profits. That's the nature of an illegal business. Um, there are no laws. There are no rules. And in order to steal from a fellow drug dealer, you know what? You got to kill him, Jim. And that's what this guy decided to do with Ed Totley. During the transaction, he shot him at point-blank range in the side of the head and killed Ed Totley almost instantly. You know, Jim, and, Neil, I just hear stories yeah. like this, too, and that's what drove me into this stuff, that you can't, if, if Coors Beer has a distribution problem with Budweiser, you know, what do they do? They, they file a complaint and they come to judges like me. But if you have illegal drug dealers, they certainly don't do that. The only way they can resolve disputes is to take guns and, and, and violence. And it's just unnecessary. We, you understand, but maybe our audience doesn't, when we finally came to our senses and repealed alcohol prohibition, homicides went down 50% the next year. And Absolutely. People like Al Capone hated repealing alcohol prohibition, but everybody else thought, wow, my goodness, that was the right thing to go. Imagine, look at what we have done for the last 12 years in alcohol prohibition, and I guarantee people within a year of when we repeal drug prohibition, we'll all join hands and look back and be aghast that we could have perpetuated such a failed system for so long. And Neil, you, you mentioned this, and you really touched on a big one. If we can't keep drugs out of our jails and prisons, how, for heaven's sake, do you expect to keep them off the streets of our towns and cities? You may know this, and, and it'll be a revelation maybe to some in our audience, but Charles Manson was found, was changed, was pushed from one state prison to another because he was found to be selling illegal drugs from his prison cell, and he was in solitary confinement. So if we can't even keep people in solitary confinement from access to this stuff, what are we doing? So... So your experience is the same, and it just brings tears to my eyes almost literally when I hear these stories. You know, absolutely. And so, as you were saying, you know, it was the violence that was 
that what first attracted me to the failed policies of prohibition. Close up and personal. And, you know, shortly after Ed was killed, I started paying attention to all the murders. You know, again, I said I'm from Baltimore. I'm now working for the Baltimore Police Department during the time when Ed was killed. And the months after, I'm paying attention to the street murders and the drive-by shootings, which didn't begin with drug prohibition. It began, like you said, with alcohol prohibition, you know, uh, hanging off the side of cars with Thompson submachine guns back in the 1920s. And we have drive-by shootings today. A family of seven, the Dawson family, two years after Ed was killed, was killed by the neighborhood drug dealer in East Baltimore because this mother was working with the police as we want them to do. Hey, call us. Let us know who's selling the drugs. We'll come in and we'll make a, make arrests and we'll get them off of the corners and out of your neighborhoods from in front of your steps. And that's what this mother was doing. And then this drug dealer found out about it set their home on fire in the middle middle of the night to send a message to the rest of the community and killed the entire family, husband, mother, five kids. And it was experiences like this that quickly, for me, made me uh, begin to assess things. And then from there, I learned about the millions of people that we were arresting and putting in prison. You know, I learned about the enormous cost, according to economist Jeffrey Myron, $50 billion in direct costs for cops, courtrooms, and prisons were spending on fighting this failed war on drugs. You know, and, and as you were saying, the list is long of the harms. You mentioned immigration and the, the flood of immigrants coming north to our country, fleeing the violence in their countries in Central America. You know, it, it's it's not because they're just looking for a place to go. They're fleeing violence, and, 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 and there are no jobs there because companies don't want to invest in violent countries. You know, so the list is long, and, and Jim, so that was the beginning of me turning, and you know what? I went online. The Internet was still kind of fresh and new, and I said, I've got to find some other people who are thinking like me because it was lonely out there as I started talking about this stuff. And I came across Leap's new website in 2003. They formed, uh, back then, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. They set up their organization formally in 2002, 2003. I found their website. I I met Jack Cole over the internet, who was the uh, prior executive director for the organization. Um, And from there, it just began. I became a member of the Speakers Bureau, joined the, the board of directors in 2008, and uh, took over the helm as the executive director in 2010. That's the yep. only reason I gave up my badge and, 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 and gave up my position in law enforcement was to head up this fine organization, LEAP. Well, Neil, thank you. And you've just done such wonderful gathering of people together. When, when I held my press conference back in 1992, I guaranteed anyone who would listen that by the year 2000, we'll have a materially different drug policy in our country because it's so obvious, so blatant that what we're doing isn't working. Well, we're now a lot later than that, and I'm, I'm shocked. I was obviously wrong, but we are making progress. I, I was at the Hoover Institute in 1993, just a year after my press conference, uh, with a gathering, in fact, it happened twice, of chiefs of police from mostly middle-level cities around the country. Uh, There were about 25 chiefs of police on two different occasions, and we were talking about this issue. And the doors were closed, and once the, the microphones were turned off, so it was all private, about half of them spoke the same way that we did. But they said, you know, what I have is a political job. You know, I'm, I'm respondent to the mayor, to the city council, to the, to, uh, various local local people. And if I were to speak publicly the way I believe, I'd probably lose my job. And so I understand that and a lot of people in law enforcement feel like you and I do, but, but why are they so, so quiet or bashful about coming forward? Neil, can you help me with that? Well, absolutely, Jim. It's, it's because, as you said, it, it's a political appointment for police chiefs across the country. Um, they're hired by, usually by a city manager or the mayor. Um, in Baltimore City, the mayor 
hires and fires the police chief. And if, if you're not singing the same party line as the person who hires you, well, first of all, you won't get hired in the first place. And if you, and if you start talking about things such as ending prohibition after you get hired, you'll find that you're going to have a very short and brief tenure there. Um, it's really just that simple because, as you said, most of us in law enforcement get it, especially the officers that are working the street every day, seeing the failures, dealing with the violence, understanding that, you know, these people who are addicted need treatment and education. They need support services. They don't need prisons. Um, you know, where it's, it's tough enough being saddled as someone, you know, with the stigma of being addicted to drugs. But then when you strap a criminal conviction upon someone, uh, it, it's, it's in my mind, it's, it's double jeopardy. Um, but we're changing that, Jim. And that's what our organization does. Uh, by having the Speakers Bureau and by speaking at Rotarian clubs and Kiwanis clubs and major universities and local community colleges, educating our policymakers at the federal, state, and local levels, um, we will speak to any community group, anyone who wants to hear, you know, uh, what we've learned being on the front lines and then uh, and understanding the devastating effects of, of drug prohibition. So we're available for that, and, and we're making that difference. You could just see what's happening with the changes in marijuana policy in this country, and not just in this country, Jim. We're an international organization, and we've been speaking all around the globe. We have a very strong branch in, in Europe. Uh, we're in Canada, where Canada has already ended marijuana prohibition from coast to coast. And uh, we're seeing the same here in the United States. And I did not think that I would see that in my lifetime. Um, we're making a difference and we just got to keep the momentum up. We got to educate so, people. So Neil, if someone in Ohio or Florida or New Mexico were to want to have a leaper, a leap speaker come to their chamber of commerce or rotary club or whatever, how do they get in contact with you? How do they find out where the, uh, the speakers would be. How, please help us. Yeah, it's, it's really easy. We make it very simple for you by use of our website. And the easiest and shortest web address is leap, that's L-E-A-P, dot C-C, C as in Charles, dot C-C. You go right to our website, click on the speakers tab, and you can either select the speaker, you can look at all the bios of our speakers, uh, you can decide you know, who you would like to, to have come to speak to you. If you're looking for a sheriff, if you're looking for a street police officer, if you're looking for a judge, if you're looking for a prosecutor, choice is yours. And oh. while you're on the website, take a look. As you were saying earlier, Jim, the intersection of all the other uh, uh, related criminal justice issues and more that we're having with these failed policies of drug prohibition uh, just take a look at all of those issues that are, are directly related to these failed policies, and you can learn quite a bit. And hear ye, hear ye. Uh, I love that statement, but LEAP is wonderful. They have marvelous speakers, well, well-rounded, well-experienced, and people just don't, uh, drug, drug prohibitionists just don't know what to make of LEAP because we have all the background in law enforcement. No one can call us soft on crime. We've got all the handcuffs and the badges and the rest. So when we come back in the next and last segment, uh, we're going to talk about the fallout from drug prohibition. Uh, we'll talk about uh, civil asset forfeiture. We'll talk about all of these various things right soon as we come back after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. 
the Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back uh, to our All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And guess who this is? It's Judge Jim Gray with my wonderful <laughs> host, excuse me, my wonderful guest, often a host, Neil Franklin, who's the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Neil, we had, in about 1993, a meeting, as I said, at the Hoover Institute with the chiefs of police from all around the country talking about the failed policy of drug prohibition. And one of the chiefs made a comment that I will never forget which was, I would not arrest your child, and I wouldn't want you to arrest mine either with regard to drugs. That's a parenting issue, and you bring children into the criminal justice system, really easy to do, but really difficult to get them out, and it can brand them for a good long time. Uh, Do you have any similar thoughts? Well, absolutely. And these thoughts, obviously, I did not realize when I was doing this work of making all these arrests, as I said before, mailing for marijuana possession. Um, in the 1970s, before we started this, this increased effort of the war on drugs, we've had drug prohibition policies in, in place for many, many, many decades. But if you look back to the early 1970s, we had roughly 400,000 people incarcerated in this country. And once we took on, and, and I think a, a lot of people don't know this, A major force in the war on drugs was when the federal government under Richard Nixon, I use the word bribe because that's pretty much what it was. The federal government bribed local law enforcement to really get into this this effort of drug prohibition policies by making large sums of money and grants available for local law enforcement to go out and enforce these laws. When we started doing that, for instance, when I started working undercover, as I mentioned in, in 1980, um, we had a very small unit. It was just a handful of people in the entire, in the entire state police that was uh, enforcing these drug laws. Within a matter of years, because of the assistance from the federal government, we ended up with a bureau of folks working undercover like me. Now we had tens and over 100 people doing this, and that's just one police agency. But as major cities and other state police departments across the country turn their little units into bureaus, we ended up going from 400,000 people roughly incarcerated in the early 70s to well over 2.3 billion, uh, 2.3 million at its height. Now, that's a dramatic increase, and and Jim, as you mentioned earlier in the show, that's the reason that we are, here in the United States, the world's number one incarcerator by rate and by raw numbers. And again, because of us fighting the war on drugs, drug prohibition laws. And most of these people, a lot of these people are young people. Their, their, their lives are ruined forever once you're saddled with uh, a, a drug conviction. Just so people know, by far, most of the people that we lock up, by far, it's for mere drug possession, for them using drugs for whatever their reason may be. Again, 
Just look at marijuana arrests alone. In 2010, we were making 700,000 marijuana possession arrests every year in this country. Today, because of the, the changes that we're seeing with medical marijuana programs in many states and adult use markets in a few states right now, we're still making hundreds of thousands of arrests, but I think we're down to somewhere around 600,000 a year now, still way too many. So let's way stop ruining many. the lives of these young people and, and you know, educate, treat, and, and do the things uh, that we need to do to change the environment in which these drugs exist. So I am speaking with Major Neil Franklin from the Baltimore Police Department, now retired and is the executive officer of LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. You mentioned one reason why so many police officers violently are objecting to a change away from drug prohibition. And uh, to be rather blatant and blunt, uh, it's called bribery. You know, they are receiving money, large amounts of money from the federal government with the stipend that it has to be used for the purpose of drug prohibition. I have two others, Neil, and I'd, I'd like you to respond to them as to why the police forces are continuing to to, to propound that drug policy of drug prohibition is working. One of them is, again, money. It's civil asset forfeiture. It's been reined back a lot by some good organizations, Institute for Justice uh, and a number of other people, because it's not nearly what it used to be, which was basically policing for profit. But that's one reason. And the other I have is a little more sophisticated, I believe, and, and I'd ask you to comment on this. Police forces it's, it's politics, and they look really better if they can show the percentage of crimes that they have been able to solve, to arrest people, even convict people. And so if you get into drug issues, it really pads their statistics enormously because prior to an arrest, there is no offense. Nobody knows the crime, but if you arrest somebody for drug sale, for example, the crime and the arrest take place instantaneously, which means that their numbers go up, or solved crimes go up, and if you take that element out of it, instead of a 70% solved radius, you'd end up with like 45%. Does that add into the, the atmosphere uh, and the sentiment to your knowledge, Neil Franklin? Yeah, and let me start there, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on to the, the money aspect with civil forfeiture. Um, you know, stats play a very huge role in policing, uh, not just so that the police chief or that leader keeps their job or sheriff keeps their job, but also as it relates to getting funding, you know, so one leads to the other. You know, you hit that nail right on the head. Um, the easiest crimes to solve are what we call on-view crimes, meaning that the police officer is the witness to the crime, therefore makes the arrest, and it's, you know, one and done. You know, so you've, you've got your, your report of your crime by the police officer, then you've got your arrest of the crime by that police officer, so you solve that crime. But when you look at, see, and, and, and let me say that this, is very time intensive. It takes police services away from crimes that are most important, like rapes and murders and finding missing children, child abductions, human trafficking. You know, those crimes go somewhat ignored and are not properly investigated. Case in point, looking at numbers, Across this country, before we started the war on drugs, we were solving nine out of ten homicides, murders across this country. Nine out of ten. Hell of a great rate. Today, that average is down to about six out of ten. In cities like Baltimore, it's four out of ten because we, are, we only have so much energy, so many resources that we can spend investigating crimes. But... The average police officer in Baltimore City and your major cities across this country, Chicago, New York, L.A., and so on, we're spending 70 to 75 percent of our time enforcing these drug laws. So that's, that was a very good point to make, Jim. And uh, the same decline in solvability 
goes hand in hand with rapes and burglaries, uh, as well as murders. So now let's talk about civil forfeiture. But Neil, before we go there, let, let me yeah. let me add my my comment on that as well. But maybe 15 years ago, I was on a panel with the chief of police of Palm Springs in California, which is a fairly small police department. I, I'm estimating they had like 35 officers, and I asked him mm-hmm. publicly, Chief, how many of your officers are programmed? full-time to work with regard to drug interdiction. And he said, oh, about maybe two and a half. And I said, okay, chief, how many of your officers are slated full-time to work on a burglary detail? And he smiled and said, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't have the manpower. So it's not a question if we were to repeal drug prohibition that we'd start firing police officers and we no longer need judges, but we would take them maybe out of their wearing a beard and off off uh, hours and driving a Mustang as an undercover officer, put them back in a uniform, shave their beard, and have them try to address burglaries, robberies, and rapes. So it, the more we only have so many resources, let's use, them, let's use them for something that was actually going to harm us instead of people that are only try, basically harming each other. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think if we were to do that and make that shift, so many great things would happen. We we have a tremendous issue with uh, corruption within our police departments because of the vast amounts of cash that are flowing through, you know, the hands of these uh, people who are selling drugs. Um, and when we when they involve themselves in, uh, you know, these cases and doing these search warrants where they're finding tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, um, corruption is rampant in Baltimore city. We just had a whole unit that is, uh, was convicted by the feds and they use the police officers, seven of them convicted by the feds. They were committing robberies of drug dealers. They were doing home invasions of people. Uh, it was just unbelievable, but that's because again, of the, of the cash that's, you know, involved in this illicit market. Um, also again, I mean, if we're able to, I got to keep coming back to this, Jim, because again, I the murders that you equated to alcohol prohibition. We hear about Chicago all the time. We hear about the murders in, in New Orleans and Chicago and, and Baltimore all the time, and even in our small towns around this around this country. If we were to end this, like we did alcohol prohibition, literally overnight, homicides in this country would be cut in half. You mentioned burglaries. Don't you understand that the people who are addicted out there having to buy these drugs from the illicit market need to get the money to buy the drugs on a daily basis? So they break into homes, they break into stores, they commit robberies, they rob gas stations, they stick you up at the ATM. Most of these by far are committed by people who are addicted and who are not getting the treatment services that they need. You know, uh, they've been able to address these problems in Switzerland through different forms of treatment and giving people access to what they need, taking it, uh, taking it on as a medical issue, not one of criminal justice. And it's made a big difference. You bet. But that's a whole other show. In that regard, I found out that this heroin maintenance program that people have in Switzerland, they've been using it since the late 1990s. Uh, shoplifting has gone down in the neighborhoods surrounding these clinics by about sevenfold. You know, burglaries have gone down. Uh, the merchants are very pleased. It, it, there's a direct connection there. But Neil, again, for Leap, give us your website so that uh, we are sure that our listeners understand where they can go to get members of law enforcement to talk about this whole issue uh, straightforwardly and honestly. Where, do they, where can they go? What's the LEAP website? Yeah, the LEAP website is L-E-A-P, that's LEAP, dot C-C, as in Charles, L-E-A-P dot C-C. Or if you want to type a lot, you can do lawenforcementaction.org. 
<laughs> Good for you. I'm going to give a promotion as well, Neil, because in 2001, I published a book called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial indictment of the war on drugs. And uh, it's been updated in 2012. It's available on Amazon. But <clears throat> I quoted, even at that time, back in 2001, when I wrote the book, uh, something on the order of 40 police officers at various uh, times or, or judges making comments as to the failure of drug prohibition. So I'd, I'd ask <clears throat> one final thought. Looking back, I've been in law enforcement and judicial system for a lot of years, and it makes as much sense to me to put this gifted actor Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem, and he's had a, a lifelong difficulty with that, but it makes as much sense to me to put Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. And of course, as everyone knows, Betty Ford was the wife of President Gerald Ford and a self-acknowledged alcoholic. It's a medical issue. Bring them closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of pushing them farther away by making them automatic criminals. But if Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, you or I drive a motor vehicle while impaired by, you name it, you know, methamphetamine, marijuana, alcohol, which is my drug of choice, that's a crime and it should be critically ask yourself what's the difference and the answer is if you're driving a motor vehicle impaired by any of these mind-altering substances you are putting our safety at risk legitimate criminal justice issue but if you go home tonight and drink 10 martinis it's not a violation of law certainly not healthy not medically a good idea but you're not harming anyone but yourself the criminal justice system is designed for and quite effective at holding people accountable for their actions against others, protecting us from each other, but it's not designed for and not good at whatsoever protecting us from ourselves. So this was Major Neil Franklin from Law Enforcement Action Partnership. This is also Judge Jim Gray telling you law, we couldn't do it worse if we tried. This problem of drug prohibition is enormously contributing to problems in our society. So there you have it. You know, life is complicated, but it can be made more straightforward, understandable, and productive by using libertarian approaches for the benefit of us all. But we don't have all the answers, but I can tell you we will ask the questions and discuss it openly, honestly, and fully. We are Americans all. We're open to free, full, and honest discussion, pulling together for the common good. And when we regain the spirit, we will all rise together. So thank you for being with us. Talk to you again in another exciting guest uptime up in the future. We're on Fridays, 7 o'clock Pacific, 10 o'clock Eastern time. In the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying life is good. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.